Hey everybody, this is Jack Blades from Night Ranger, Damn Yankees, and Shaw Blades. You're listening to your morning coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, just how pervasive is streaming fraud? Also from Billboard, major labels, publishers reach deal at CRB to increase songwriter mechanical royalties. And from Input, how Dolby Atmos is revolutionizing everything we listen to. Well, Jay, let's set our phasers to stun and let's kick back and get rolling. This is episode number 91 of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. And here we go. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, Jay, good to see you, brother. Good to see good you. Good to see you. Yeah, and here we are talking, and it's we have so much good news to talk about. When and you mentioned an article out of Billboard talking about the CRB finally agreeing to raising the royalty rates. We'll get into that in detail, but that is so exciting. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot. It's it's so cool. And how about that intro from uh, Jack Blades from Night um, Ranger? And yeah, oh my God, and yeah, I, damn Yankees, Shaw Blades. And, a, and I've heard, I've never met him, but I've heard anecdotally that he is just the nicest guy on the planet and such a great singer and killer vocalist. Oh and my uh, gosh. He is uh, such a great guy. I did a photo shoot uh, with Night Ranger a couple of years ago and he was charming and hilarious. I mean, all those guys are super great. And this, by the way, is their 40th anniversary. How wow. cool is that? Oh God. Where does the time go? I guess it <laughs> begs the question. It's like 40 yeah. years. I remember and the they songs are, like they were yesterday. They're managed by Jack Blade's son, James. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met him when he was working for Doc McGee, you know, a decade or more ago. Super smart guy. He's really taken over the reins of, of that band over the years and has done such a fantastic job of of managing i'm just killing it oh that's awesome you know there's and that precedent is is uh it's not unheard of i think tom jones's son manages him and back when tony uh bennett was on the road his son managed him and so you've got these legacies and and kids managing their parents yeah i'm working with a few clients like that um mickey hart from grateful dead Mm -hmm. 
Um, he has, I don't know if you remember, uh, Planet Drum of course. from about 15 years ago. Grammy Award winning uh, Planet Drum. And it really kind of um, put what they call world music today on the map. Before that, there really wasn't uh, what they call world music. And Mickey Hart is managed by Rhea, his daughter, who's awesome. Super and cool. they just dropped last week, dropped a new Planet Drum track. And there's a new Planet Drum uh, album coming the first week of August. So Very that's pretty cool. cool. Very cool. And now you have a new podcast uh, that's going to be dropping fairly soon with Glenn Peoples, which is really exciting. Yeah, it's it's been so much fun. I think we've recorded six episodes. It's called Behind the Set List. And we talk to artists about the songs they perform live. And we've had conversations with uh, Andy Grammer, um, mm. Kurt Smith from Tears for Fears, mm-hmm. and Ann Wilson, and Simple Plan, and John Wade. And it is just fascinated. Well, we were really curious about set list like who who writes up that set yeah. list right can you vary it because some bands <clears throat> because of their lights and pyro or whatever everything is scripted and you can't vary uh your set list but others in fact most of the people we were talking to they they can do it on the fly which is pretty cool and some of them do really interesting cover songs you know <clears throat> excuse me um and like Andy Grammer does poetry uh, before some of his songs, he'll just read a couple of minutes, not read, he'll recite and they're inspirational and they're just really powerful stuff. And it, so it, it's really funny. It's really good. Um, can't wait to, uh, to get it out there, but it's called behind the set list with Glenn peoples from uh, billboard. Awesome. Awesome. That'd be fantastic. And where do you, where do you make the time, Jay? Well, <laughs> when, when do you sleep? You know, same with you. I'm, I want to do more, not less. And speaking of doing more, I listened to your your interview with Garrison Keeler, um, and I believe that was for an uh, NPR special. Um, what a fantastic interview, and what an interesting cat. Oh, yeah. It was so fun. How'd that come about? That's super cool. Oh, it's, it's you know, like all these things. It was sort of a series of coincidences. And so he's got a new book coming out. And so um, they were looking for somebody to do a radio special for NPR and public radio stations. And um, they somehow came to me. And um, yeah, I'd never chatted with him yet before. But uh, super, you know, one of those interviews, and we've all done them, where you just kind of have to hit record and, and just sit back and, you know, and, and he's such a pro <laughs> right. and it was, it was yeah. really fun. And, and he's, uh, again, another big music fan too, you know, but, but before we started, it, I had read that he was a Beach Boys fan. And so of course I did a lot of work with the Beach Boys back in the day. And so, yeah, uh, we had, you know, chatted about music and, uh, yeah, super, super charming guy. So thanks for, for that. Shout great, out. great interview. And I found out this morning something I never knew. And that is that you, Went out uh, years ago and did uh, an interview with Bill Clinton. Yeah, and, uh, in his office. I can't and, wait to hear that. Yeah, we did. I did a couple different Christmas radio specials around his book giving back in the day, and um, like the most nervous I've ever been for for somebody <laughs> that I've interviewed or, or you know chatted yeah. with. It. But again, talking about music, and you know he is a gigantic music fan, and at the end of the interview with him. Um, 
of course, that was the year of iPods, and I'd asked him what was on his iPod, and oh boy, he just wanted to talk about music. His people were kind of trying to get him out of there, and he wanted to talk about hanging out with you two and Diana Krall, and you know, he's a sax player and a big music fan. So it's it's always fun when you kind of tap into people, you know, and you go beyond what you're what you're meant to talk about, and you just yeah, get I would personal. love to talk music with him. Oh, Everybody yeah. knows, you know, he's a saxophone player, mm-hmm. and you know, Emily Kagan, who's on our label Logic team, her mom uh claudia booked bill clinton on the arsenio hall show oh my god that famous performance you know where he wore the sunglasses and played the saxophone and some people credit that for pushing him over with the uh younger people and getting him to win the presidency yeah absolutely no without a doubt i remember seeing that on television live and going wow you know what a different generation of presidential candidate the guy who comes out and plays sax you know on 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 a cool show so yeah speaking of cool people by the way every day every every day but every week i get to hang out and talk with my cool friend jay gilbert you must know him he's the co-founder of music marketing and strategy company label logic he's the curator of the your morning coffee newsletter which of course informs everything we do here on the podcast and a former executive with universal music sony music warner music groups and fox home entertainment Thank you, brother. And uh, my co-host here is the longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, uh, Mike Etchart, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music. And we spent a little bit of extra time together this week, which we'll touch on on our third story. But hang in there because we had quite a day this week. (laughs) We had a lot of fun with with a new friend to me. And some old friends, and yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get talking about that. But Jay, of yeah. course, when we do the podcast every week, we have a team, an army, a gaggle of folks that really <laughs> help us put it together. And without yeah. our sponsors, boy, we could not do it. So I'll let you yeah. jump into our thanking yeah. our groovy sponsors. We sure do. Um, let's thank the Music Business Association. Uh, the Music Biz Conference is next week. Um, I'll be there. In fact, I'm starting to pack already. I'll be leaving tomorrow. Um, And that's taking place uh, next week at the JW Marriott in Nashville. Really looking forward to it, along with returning favorites like the Metadata Summit, Next Gen Now, DSP Workshops, Brand Summit. You'll find timely new additions for 2022, including uh, conversations on NFTs, gaming, immersive music experiences, catalog acquisitions, and much more. Hope you can make it. Uh, Visit musicbiz.org for more. Don't forget, Jay is buying the drinks. So when you walk up to him, say, hey, I need it. I'm a little thirsty. He'll he'll throw down that credit card. Don't worry. Uh, Hey, we're also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. And yes, Bands in Town, over 65 million live music. Music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform, connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Big thanks, Music Business Association, HypeBot, Bands in Town. Yes, indeed. We appreciate it. We certainly do. Well, Jay, let us uh, buckle in and start talking about the stories. And 
Oh, you know, this is a, a the, our first story. Of course, we have covered this many times, but it is a continued topic in this new digital streaming business. Just how pervasive yeah. is streaming fraud? This is from Billboard magazine, and yeah. uh, this is from Elias Light or Leet. I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name of that, but uh, yeah, here we go. You know, as they say, well, the full scope of the problem remains unclear. New information provides insight into the challenges faced by indie labels and and distributors on Spotify. Yeah, and you'll remember it was uh, Elias who also wrote that piece um, in Rolling Stone mm -hmm. back in March. It was uh, March of 2021. He he wrote this article, and the headline was "Inside the Black Market, Where Artists Can Pay for Millions of Streams," and it was it was really shocking for a lot of folks in the industry back then to learn that there were companies out there that would promise you hundreds of millions of streams over a year. And I know that the DSPs are trying to crack down on this, and we'll talk about that in this piece uh, a little bit. But I get emails every week from companies, and I keep a folder of them um, that are saying, for this much money, I can get you this many streams. There's also, you know, YouTube uh, subscribers or views or, you know, social likes, follows, things like that. But really, the most that I get are from these companies that for a fee, they will they claim that they will get you uh, plays. The problem with that is, you know, as we've reported on, it can get you pulled off of DSPs. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not good. Um, but sometimes you may not even know you're doing it. And what I mean by that is I had a, a client who hired a publicist and the publicist as part of their service to try to compete with other publicists had this service where they would um, pay this other service to jack up the stream numbers. But they were using things that are bots and spin farms and things like that that we're going to talk about in this article. And we tell clients all the time, don't ever do it. It's They're not real fans. They're not going to buy your merch. They're not going to be butts in the seats. It's it's always a bad idea to pay for this. <clears throat> but I get why people are doing it because you're judged on these numbers. Yes. Um, I had a, an artist tell me last week that they thought that they were um, excluded from this festival because their numbers weren't big enough. Their social footprint and their streaming numbers weren't big enough, and they, they were asking for ways to jack those numbers up. So it's really a problem within the industry right now. And just, just to be clear, a fake stream can be thought of as anything which isn't fans listening to music they love, according to a definition offered by Napster's former chief commercial officer, Angel Gambino. Um, so yeah, you know, this is... This is goes back to the beginning of the music industry. People are always trying to kind of game the system and get a leg up. And but as you have mentioned so many times, you know, a lot of artists don't know what's going on on their behalf. And so, right. you know, so it's just and of course the 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 problem is that there is a a specific pool of money that is distributed each month to people that listen to to from from the revenue that the DSPs uh, intake. And then it's di dispersed at incorrect ratios because of these fake streams. And that's the whole right. problem there. And it's really hard to combat. But as you've mentioned, it's also not that hard to, to notice identify. And, and identify. Super easy. Yeah. And they talk about that in this piece. They said that, you know, every month the Merlin Network, you know, and that handles digital licensing for a lot of uh, indie labels and distributors, uh, the Merlin Network 
sends members a report uh, that details the percentage of fraudulent uh, streams on Spotify generated by their artists and catalogs. In the Merlin system, which accounts for roughly 15% of the global market, about 2.5% of ad-supported streams didn't qualify as fans listening to music they love in February, according to a pair of indie label executives who viewed the latest report. Those sources said the same month, 1.2% of the plays from premium Spotify accounts in the Merlin system were deemed fraudulent. And of course, what happens with that when they deem them fraudulent is they don't pay out on them. Um, so the numbers may still be there when you look at that front-facing number on Spotify, for example, that says that your song has a million streams. There's not a lot of DSPs that do that, so that's why people pick on uh, Spotify. But those numbers still stay there um, in those uh, in those counts, unless Spotify, um, you know, they can prove that some of these are fake as well. We we reported on a story a while back where they had pulled down a bunch of tracks that they um, claim were, you know, uh, illegitimate. They were using bots and spin farms. So it's it's challenging, but there are ways that the DSPs and, of course, you know, we're talking about Merlin here, can identify these things and remove them. Well, and, and as the article mentions, a lot of this was kind of happening, at least when you're talking about Spotify, in their free tier. But as they said, one thing that worries the executives who spoke to Billboard <clears throat> about Merlin's fraud reports, an increasing portion of Spotify's premium streams appeared to be fake. So the problem started, again, primarily with the free tier, but now it seems to be split. So we're, we're now kind of heading into the, into the paid tier where you're seeing a lot of this fraudulent activity. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah, it's it is an issue. It is a problem, and it's not unique to Spotify, obviously. And I mean, boy, God help you if you get taken off, because it's really hard to get back on. That's it, right? You know, and and people ask like, why is streaming fraud? You know, why is it so important? You know, streaming services typically pay the rights holders. You and I say that every week. You know, according to their percentage of total plays on a platform in a specific territory. So that means if any fraud goes undetected in a particular reason, uh, region, even basis points, you know, which is like 0.01% of market share being redirected into, you know, these fraudsters' hands, have a material impact on everyone who shares in that pool. So it's there's always going to be some. Uh, someone who's going to try to game the system. It's as old as business, not just the music industry. But there's always people who are going to try to game the system. But I think it's uh, becoming increasingly um, easier to identify it. And then, it, again, like you said, I mean, God help you if you're one of those people who gets yanked down. Oh, oh God, getting back up is a, is a is is an exercise in. Um aggravation shall we say so yeah you know it's and this is going to be something we will be talking about for as long as we talk about the digital music business because people like you said are always going to be trying to gaming the system and um and it's just it, it's if there's money to be made people are going to try to scam and we will continue to report on it but it's not it's not going away yeah. And the last thing I'll say on it is I saw this uh, this video on HypeBot this week, and it wasn't a brand new video, but it's one that kind of resurfaced. And it's somebody in, you know, um, the spin farm. And basically what it is, this one happened to be in um, New York, I think, but there's a lot of them they find in China. But it's basically this room, you can see it on HypeBot, where 
the the walls are covered with iPhones, yeah. like hundreds of iPhones, and they're they're um, tapped into a central computer, and they'll just play a song over and over and over twenty four seven, and just rack up these plays, and they use all sorts of uh, trickery to. Um, hide the IP address and the mm-hmm. region and things like that. <clears throat> Hopefully, these uh, these DSPs, you know, are onto that and can you know shut them down. But it's it's big business now uh, for people to buy fake streams. And uh, like I said before, you just you don't want to do it. It's, there's there's no good that can come from it. Nope. But a lot of people are doing it on or potentially on your behalf as a, if you're an artist, um, and you may not know about it, and it's uh, it is a real problem. But we will yeah. continue to report on this, Jay, because guess what? Yeah. It's not going away. <laughs> for crying no. out loud. All right, let's jump into our next story. As I'm kind of organizing my or semi organizing, also from Billboard. <laughs> this is the 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 highlight really of the week. I was so surprised when you actually texted me this when it happened when it hit. Uh, this is also from Billboard. Major labels, publishers reach deal at the CRB to increase songwriter mechanical royalties. Yeah. And boy, I just I just almost let out a. Uh, a holler when I read that. It's like, oh my goodness, finally. It's so great to read that. Really good yeah, news. Yeah, you and I have been talking about this and uh, there have been a couple of people uh, that have been re- uh, leading the charge on it. But just to set the stage, and I know we've done this uh, in the past, but just so everybody's kind of on the same page with this, um, this is about the CRB, the Copyright Royalty Board, and they set the rates that DSPs pay publishers, which is songwriters. Mm-hmm. And we're starting CRB 4 right now, or Phono Records 4, as it's also known as. Uh, but CRB 3 set the rate at 15.1% through 2022, but Spotify and Amazon um, were appealing that. The CRB is a two-year process, so now we're into CRB 4, um, and that goes, once it's um, ratified, for, for lack of a better term, it, it runs through uh, uh, 2023 through 2027. So here, here's what it means. The National Music Publishers Association, that's easy for you to say, at MPA wants DSPs to pay more. Mm-hmm. DSPs want to pay less. The NMPA claims that DSPs, like Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, you know, that they're currently proposing or were proposing the lowest rates ever, uh, somewhere around, you know, 10%, but the NMPA wanted it to be 20%, right? But these songwriters haven't had a pay raise, you know, in decades. So um, we, we talked about, like, where should this increased money, you know, come from? Um, this, the NMPA wants DSPs to pay more. Um, so how do we pay them more right now? Um, 30% of what's of that revenue that's coming in, the DSPs keep 30, roughly 30%, Mm -hmm. 55% is paid out to the rights holders and, you know, uh, around 15% out, uh, to, uh, the songwriters and PROs. So, and that publishing money that comes in is kind of an 80, 20 split typically between the songwriter and the publisher. But as you and I point out, and then we can jump into this article. You know, you really, it's not just about um, that. It's about the value of the song to the DSP, like Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon, right? DSPs gain stock value that the songwriters don't participate in. They gain value in other ways, like Amazon Prime memberships, Spotify, you know, podcasts and merch sales via Shopify and the car thing and, you know, Apple's product ecosystem. And 
I was so excited when I sent you the article. Um, I sent it to a, a, a prominent music industry attorney that we both know. And I, I sent him a text. I said, so is this the labels basically agreeing to the new rate and withdrawing from requesting an extension of the old rate? And he said, sort of. It's the label saying that since we submitted the new proposed settlement, we no longer object to the rejection of the first settlement. So sorry we wasted hours of your time in referring the fake novel issues to the Copyright Office, and sorry we wasted the Copyright Office's time in reviewing the novel issues uh, referral that should never have been made in the first place. But now that we've decided to offer a new settlement, yeah, just forget about all that. Right. And, you know, and as you and I sort of, I think we were were using the word galling that, you know, everybody in this value chain, we're just saying no to the most important part of the value chain, which is the song. And that's when we talked to Merc Mercuriatus. This was a, a big part of our discussion, which is, yeah. you know, these are the people that it, it starts with the song and our whole industry is based on it, right? Exactly. And we are just sticking it to them in a bad way and, and in a way we shouldn't do that. So it's, you know, so now we're, we're talking, so again, the, the original rate was 9.1 cents and now we're talking about b- being raised to 12 cents, which is a 32% increase, which corresponds to the growth of the consumer price index since 2006. All good. What, what, what I, as we were starting to read a little bit more about it, what, what I was happy to see. It says, as part of the settlement, the CRB will also tie the 12 cent rate to the consumer price index annually to calculate if any raises are required throughout the five-year term. That is very encouraging and fair. Exactly. We're not asking for something that's unfair. This is just, it's so fair. And yet it was just a brick wall with these knuckleheads that was so frustrating. Yeah, it, it's been a real challenge, right? And this this Billboard article is incredible. But the first place that I went um, when I heard about this is to Music Technology Policy. You know mm-hmm. that website that you and I talk about yep. that Chris Chris Castle runs, and he's he's such a you know great uh, proponent for for the songwriters. And in Music Technology Policy. Um, immediately Chris posted to their credit, Sony universal and Warner stepped up and agreed to offer the world's songwriters increased rates of 12 cents plus inflation indexing for the next five years, which they didn't have to do. Assuming the copyright royalty board accepts the deal, a step you might miss out from the press coverage. Um, this has had the effect of a quick end to a process. The labels had every right to litigate in CRB. Remember, they were doing that with CRB3. Mm-hmm. The other benefits to the settlement is that it should, if it doesn't get screwed up again, it should take away a major argument that the digital retailers are using against songwriters in the streaming part of Phono Records 4 or CRB4 proceeding. That argument is the most obvious um, negotiating tactic in the world. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. The services are essentially saying that if the rates should be frozen when the labels are paying the mechanicals, Um, which they are on physical and downloads, not streaming, then the rates should be frozen when the services are paying the mechanical, which the services are on streaming, and no inflation adjustment. Well, no kidding. Exactly. And that's an important thing to remember, too, is that when we're talking about mechanical royalties, and if you go back to the physical era, obviously the labels pay the mechanical royalties. They still do on on physical product and on down 
on down no not and downloads yeah. yes and on yeah. downloads they do not pay it so on, on when it comes to streaming it's right. a big job i mean that is a a a, a back end not insignificant thing for a, for a DSP to be responsible for paying those mechanicals, but they do, and so yeah. it, it is it is um, it is often forgotten that that's a different way of doing things now that has come with with streaming world, and so um, it's. And mechanicals, and by the way, this entire conversation, you really do need to have the acronym decoder ring because there are so many different acronyms when you're talking about all these organizations right. and, and companies. PROs and yeah, CRB. Exactly. And- right, 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 right. So it, it is a challenge. But boy, it is it is so gratifying to read that that it's it it seems to be the, the log jam is starting to be cleared up. And that's yeah, that's really super exciting. Really big big news i got so excited when i saw it and you know reached out to you and and reached out to some friends and i think the the most interesting thing that i read about it um was really again from chris castle he he had written um do we still have bones to pick with the labels absolutely could the rate uh have been even more fair sure might it have been if the publishers had actually done their job and negotiated it in the first place maybe probably but they didn't, so we'll never know. However, credit where credit's due. The labels pulled this one out and saved the publisher's bacon in spite of themselves. There you go. A couple of other recommendations for the CRB proceedings include, though, establishing a floor to set a minimum for subpart B mechanical royalty rates in the case in, in case the consumer price index should decline. So that's really good news too. So remember, don't forget the, the you know inflation can go the other way as well. So they want to set that floor. Right. Um, the elimination from the CRB rate setting process of corporate side deals and private memos of understandings, the latter of which uh, was a flashpoint, and, and a Billboard wrote another article about that, of the first settlement, and they want the elimination of contractually frozen royalty rates locked in pursuant to controlled composition clauses, some yeah. at levels of two cents. And so when you talk about controlled compositions, that is when, let's say, you are signed to Warner Brothers Records for your recorded material, and you also have a publishing with, say, Warner Chapel. So it's kind of all in the family, and boy, they they can screw you in those cases, or they or they they have these little internal deals between publishing and recording contracts, and so this is kind of addressing some of that. So, all good stuff at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, look, there are going to be people who complain about this because they're going to have to pay out uh, more money. Um, but you and I have also talked about how we feel that. Streaming is such a bargain. I mean, 10 bucks and you basically get anything in the recorded history. It's crazy. It's that that should be that should be higher. It's it's worth more than that. And they they talk about um, physical uh, physical goods um, are often quoted as 15 percent of sales across the industry. But for some indie labels, physical can be 40 percent of revenue and even higher. You know, so meanwhile, the wholesale prices of sales formats have either steadily dropped in the case of CDs or remained about the same since 2006 in the case of downloads. Uh, As for vinyl, which has steadily seen prices rise, costs have outpaced increases in vinyl wholesale prices, which means the labels aren't making any more profit and may be making even less profit on vinyl than they were at lower price points. That kind of surprises me a little well, bit. Well, and I raise my eyebrows on that one as well. I I, I still think that there's 
all up and down that value chain when you've got a $30 price or whatever the price, you know, for vinyl, there's some people making money in there. And that's, uh, yeah, I kind of did the dog kind of yeah. moving my head yeah. sideways like, what? Me too. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't make sense. But I think at the end of the day, one, one of the things brought up is that the indie labels will likely face a greater financial burden as a result of this settlement because they do do, they they have a lot more f- uh, physical product and physical goods that are a big part of their business operations. So yeah. we'll see, you know, we will see. But I think in general, um, it's great news. Really yeah, great news. Yeah, songwriters got a 30% raise, give or take, and and we couldn't be happier about it. So yeah, pretty cool. So that's, it's, it's cause for celebration without a doubt. Yeah. Well, let's go to this next article, Jay, from Input. Uh, how Dolby Atmos is revolutionizing everything we listen to. And it ironically ties into a little a little get-together we had. What day was that? Thursday? Just day before yesterday? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely want to dive into that. But you were the one that kind of hit me to Dolby Atmos and what it is. And for our listeners who hear spatial audio and Dolby Atmos and Sony 360 or whatever, can you just give a, a brief description of what we're talking about? Well, yeah. So this, you know, in, in Jay, you and I were there um for the last go around of this, and, and and that was not even the first go around of this. You know, when we talk about Dolby Atmos and, and immersive audio, what we're talking about really is multi-channel audio, and so stereo, of course, is two-channel. And don't forget that was a revolution when that happened as well, because the original you know format was mono, monaural, um, one-channel audio. And then when we went to stereo, that was next. And then after stereo came the first kind of quad. interesting quad in the early to mid seventies, <laughs> which was four channel audio. And then and that didn't really work out very well either. And then we moved to uh, in our day in the early two thousands when we were when it was a new format war sort of going on between super audio CD and DVD audio. Then it was five point one. Um, mixes. I've and got some of those. Yeah, and that's essentially six channel, really. The 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 one sub channel uh, they call a point one because it's not. Uh, you can you are is that just e- the bass? Is it's that what just that the is, bass? Or? Yeah, because because you can't the human ear can't identify where sub notes like that come from. Yeah, but so it's not got really it. a channel per se. But anyway, it was five channel audio, and then the latest is. Dolby Atmos and then DTS has a has a thing, but it's it we call it immersive audio, and but it is also in, in the in the last go around five point one was was basically uh, a horizontal thing. It was it was all kind of around you, but it wasn't above you. So it was five. You know, you had a speaker in the middle and two on left, right in front of you, and then you had two in the rear. That was five point one. There was 7.1, there was 9.1, but all of those formats from 15 years ago or so didn't address anything above you. No, super popular for, you know, watching movies. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. This all starts with movies, really, and yes. outfitting uh, theaters and things like that, and then music kind of got in the game, and then uh, Dolby, At- Dolby introduced Atmos, which was their sort of uh, immersive and... Um, for movies again, but this introduced height and also an ability when you're when you're creating these files or, or taking this this 
uh, these programs to to move things around in a way that you couldn't do with 5.1. So you really have an ability yeah. to move these things through space above you That's and around it. you. You you do, you told me about this and the way you described it to me which made a lot of sense was it basically takes a sound, let's say it's a guitar or a voice or whatever instrument, it it makes it into an object that it can place anywhere in the room. And that helped me to understand because then when we went into the studio, you can even see it on the screen uh, where they're placing these objects. And so you and I went to uh, the studio this last week, and we've done this before, but it's always such a joy uh, with our our friend Greg Penny, who's you know Greg has worked with Elton John, Katie Lang. He was nominated for a Grammy in two thousand six for his surround sound mix of Honky Chateau. I mean, he's just a wonderful human being. But we also brought up our friend David Brookings from Apple Music because not only is he the catalog programmer and does you know programming for blues, oldies, classic rock, all this stuff, he does programming for Apple Music's. Uh, spatial audio or mm-hmm. Dolby Atmos. Talk a little bit about <laughs> wow, and I, we'll get into kind of the second part of that. But the first part, just going there, and we did the same thing to David that you did to me the last time we went to the studio, which is you put me in the director's chair, so to speak. You put me right in front of the console, yeah. and just and you guys turned on Here Comes the Sun uh, by the Beatles. Yeah. And I I was emotionally moved. I'd never heard anything like that uh, in my life. And you kind of did that to David, too. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things to kind of, to put it in perspective is, you know, when if you understand the way records are made, um, you know, now and going back even for the last 40 years, say, which is, it's almost, it's like origami. So, you know, records are recorded in layers. So in the days of analog tape, uh, it was typically 24 tracks. So you have 24 layers. And then you you kind of fold it down into a stereo mix. So you're kind of taking these 24 layers and you're folding it to get a stereo mix into two channels. What all of this is, is almost reverse origami. You're taking that you're taking those 24 channels or 24 layers now and and undoing them from the stereo mix but the stereo mix is still the reference and still it's the it's the it's the the thing that we knew um, if it's a, if it's an older recording it's it's what we associate with and let's say it's here comes the sun by the beatles from abbey road um, so you can't deviate too far from that but it allows you to open it up in a way that that's that's so remarkable and so yeah. um it just moves. It moves you. And when we well, there's a you, there's ahead. a separation of the instruments that you know. One of the things that um, Greg played for us um, was this Elton John track. And for the first time, and I've heard this song a lot. Um, I heard that the guitar parts were separated. Davy Johnstone's, I believe, was an acoustic guitar part, and they weren't double tracked. It was two separate parts that kind of danced and. Yeah worked with each other and when you separate some of these things from each other you're experiencing the song in a different way it still sounds like that song that you know you know it's not like they're bringing the vocals up really high and then pulling the drums down really low or it's nothing like that it's really more of separating things and putting them in this room away from each other so you can so you can hear them in a different way it is 
one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had listening to music. Oh, it is. It, it absolutely is. And, and you know, we, got, we all got a taste of this when you and I were at Universal when we were doing these surround sound mixes. And, and that was a, a, a equally remarkable for the time, but it, the, 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 the canvas is, was much um, less deep than it is now with the, the latest in technologies. Well, let me ask you a question. You and I, I remember working on SACD and DVD audio do you think that because they were there were competing formats that that hurt the format? Yeah, absolutely. And that's always been the problem with all of these formats going back to quad VHS, and, Betamax. And, and, yeah, and even going back to stereo, you know, cuz when you think about that, so it's it's the ecosystem to make anything happen like this is is pretty intense. So it starts kind of in the recording studio. So the 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 transition from mono to stereo, and if you know the Beatles are always a good sort of um uh, yeah, kind of a, a thing to talk about because people are so familiar with that material. But, you know, for the most of the Beatles output of the classic albums, mono was the, the, the standard format. And so they spent tons of time mixing for mono. Stereo was very much an afterthought. It really wasn't the principal format until the last album, until Abbey Road. So um, but so you, you have to start with just the, the stuff in the studio. So you have to suddenly, you know, you're recording in stereo and you have to have stereo field monitors and all that stuff. Then there's, of course, the consumer level stuff. So then you have to make that transition from the manufacturers have to make home systems that are, in this case, stereo or, or later on other things. So you've got these competing electronics companies. You've got the, the what happens in the studio. There's a lot of things that have to happen to make a format successful. And then when you have competing formats, it just messes it up. And what has historically yeah. happened, and if, if you go back to the quad years in the early 70s, there were like four or five different ways of creating quad mixes. Some of them were kind of trickery, and the same thing happened with stereo early on. There were ways to, without really mixing in stereo, you could kind Phasing of put a mono, exactly, yeah. mono signal into something to kind of phase it and give kind of fake stereo. And, um, and the same thing was happening with quad, and there were these kind of fake versions of it, and there were real discrete mixes that were done in four channel. So a lot of things has to have to go right to, to really have a format <laughs> yeah. succeed, but yeah. it's very easy for them to just slide off the side of the road and just disappear, which happened with quad, and sort of happened with, with SACD when it was, you have these electronic companies, like in the case of, of SACD, it was Sony and Philips. They were the creators of the seed of the compact disc. And it all started in the early 2000s in our involvement with that because the patents for compact discs were running out. And so that was a gigantic, um, for the companies that own patents, I think Philips had the patent on cassettes. Um, you know, they, they, made a, they make money off the manufacturing of any of those formats. Everyone sold. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's a gigantic income royalty stream when you, when you own the patents, the IP on these, on these formats. So that even gets the whole thing messed up as well. So when we were working at Universal, SACD and DVD Audio, they were competing. It was Panasonic and Sony and Philips. And consumers said, I don't want either. And yeah. And so that kind of died a death. They and sounded amazing. It sounded I have Crowded great. Houses. Uh, I have Crowded Houses debut album, and it it sounded absolutely amazing the way it separated the horns mm -hmm. and and things like that. But are we? Do you think we're we're running into that with um, this immersive spatial audio as well? I think there's a there's a 
for sure we are to a certain extent. And and this article really points out, uh, they go very deep, because when you're talking about immersive audio, and even then, with the, our first go around with surround sound, you know, we kind of recognize that, well, where's a great place? Where are you seated all the time to hear music immersively or in surround? Well, it's Your obviously in, the, in a car. Exactly. And so you've kind of got cars as as a great place to have that. Um, but then you're dealing with the OEM manufacturers and cars. And how do you get that file or that that device that carries the digital information into your car. And now, of course, so much listening happens in headphones. And so how does this transfer to headphones, listening in headphones? And so we've got competing formats. We've got Sony um, has their own immersive thing, 3D audio, it's called. Um, And then there's using Dolby Atmos in headphones. It's not as great in headphones as Sony's is, which presents a problem. And so there's just a lot of things that have to be worked out. And then you have to have the support from the labels. And the labels historically have not wanted to pick a horse when there's multiple formats. They want to let consumers do that, which I understand the rationale of that. Um, But that confuses things and makes it more challenging. So you have a number of issues starting from the understanding of how to do it in the studio all the way through what the consumer uses to to do that all the way to the business decisions that have to be made and competing formats it is a um it's a it's a field full of landmines that that you don't want to step on one to and because right. it can blow up and and yeah. then never have it but as you and me know when you experience it in the right way it's life-changing it's oh my gosh fantastic. it really is and it in this article, I didn't realize that it it kind of got off to a rocky start because yeah. when I first, you introduced me to it, I was blown away uh, by everything that I've heard. I haven't heard anything that didn't sound good, um, but they talk about um, there, in, initially there was a limited library of these songs, right? Because mm-hmm. it takes time to do this. But it, they, they state that even songs from the same artist had wildly different outcomes. As an example, just listen to the Atmos mix of Weezer's uh, Say It Ain't So compared to the hollow and lifeless Atmos mix of Buddy Holly. Two songs from the same album, and they sung like they were mastered in different universes. And you and I touched on this in the studio that there's always that... <sighs> you know, that motivation to cut corners, to go on the cheap. And talk about that a little bit. Well, I I think, you know, part of the problem, too, starts with most people that work in the music industry, certainly at big labels, don't understand how records are made, don't understand what the components that exist in the vaults are and, and all of that stuff. And they... And they also try to, as you say, do things on the cheap. And at the end of the day, this stuff can't, is, is kind of expensive to do, to do it right. And again, you, you know, the, the classic line, you don't, uh, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. Um, you, you, you need to spend some money. And one of the challenges that happened for the format in general was that the major labels were looking at, at the immersive uh, formats and high-res audio as being a premium tier. So that and that premium tier, so a, subs- a subscriber would pay a little bit more to have access to that stuff. Um, but if and that little more would cover perhaps the 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 cost for for production to because it is it can be expensive. And so when Apple chain, remember Apple f- kind of flipped the sw- the script and said we're going to make all these immersive things essentially free, part of a regular subscription. So that kind of 
the major the majors that kind of was a a a wrench in the in the gears and yeah, so Amazon did that as well they and Amazon the higher quality that's um, right as part of your subscription right so uh, and even before that though the, the labels are trying to kind of do this on the cheap and you can't do this on the cheap and so they want to get a uh, they think that this should cost two hundred and fifty dollars you know get a get an engineer in to just kind of move stuff around and we're good. It doesn't work that way. You really have to spend some time and get the right masters. And the problem, too, is there's a lot of uh, stems that are floating around in various people's archives that were used for uh, rock, rock band, band and these, yeah. these video games from 10, 15 years ago yeah. that are much lower resolution. And so they pull those out and they use them in, in, in doing immersive mixes, not knowing that they need... And again, you, what you really need to do is go back to the original source material and get the best quality possible. Right. So, you know, it's all of these things combined that can make it great right. or make it suck. And you right. d- and and as this article points out, there is there is some suckage and there is lots of greatness in the mix, but it's confusing. Right. Very You're confusing. absolutely right. I mean, you have to have that great source uh, first, but something that you and I understand uh, all too well is that you also need to have somebody who is skilled yes. at actually doing it, which brings us to our next visit. So we, we talked about um, hanging out with Greg Penny, um, and that was amazing. Um, but David mentioned that that night, this last Thursday, he was putting up uh, a feature on the band The Doors. Mm-hmm. And you guys kind of snickered and said, well, you know, Bruce Botnick, who produced The Doors, is like, he's just right down the street here, and he does these uh, immersive mixes. He does. So we call him, we walk down there, and we get to hang out with him. And for those that don't know, not only did Bruce Botnick, you know, produce The Doors, but, you know, the Beach Boys, and uh, I think he was in on the Good Vibration session he, he was, was talking about, and, and Eddie Money, and, I mean, these, to me, uh, these are like legendary guys that were in the room when this wonderful art was created and they have a different take on it. I mean, if I'm Elton John, I want Greg Penny doing this because he knows the music. He was in the studio when they recorded Goodbye Yellowbrook Road. He was in the room. Right. That sort of thing, which it's not just somebody trying to crank these things out cheaply uh, just to get them out there. It's someone who's going to pay the respect and honor these for what they are. Absolutely, and that's and that's where the the conflict is with when you're talking about major labels is they oftentimes don't recognize the importance of having the people that have a connection to the the original production of those recordings or or have experience doing this and um, yeah so you know Bruce Botnick's studio is literally across the parking lot from Greg's studio <laughs> so we <laughs> we walked over there and uh, and. You know, there's nothing like, first of all, hearing the doors in immersive is is pretty epic. And so Bruce played us a, a track uh, that he was working on. And and then you hear the stories of what it was like because he was there when they recorded it for the first time. And it's just, you know, it's it, we all had sort of ear to ear grins. And we're just and there's some other things we can't really talk about that we listen to there as well, because these are coming out soon. But um no, it was just, it's, it's really fun to sit in the studio yeah. and get a chance and to hear it and then to kind of talk to these guys that were there when the first tracks went down and know the, yeah. the, 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 they know all of the effects that were used. They knew how it went down and all of that stuff really, 
that attention to detail and that and that sort of connection to the artist, you know, it's not just a gig for them. You know, they yeah. they have to, um, you know, Bruce was saying that he still, you know, often talks to the two living, the remaining two living members of the Doors, and you know, this this matters to them. This is their legacy in addition to the sure group's is. legacy. So yeah. all of that stuff yeah. matters when it's going, and it's not just it's not something to be cranked out and templatized as no. No. as lots of labels and label groups kind of try to make it. And, yeah, uh, I hope they don't. Um, one of the things that surprised me, and I'm not going to give away the the release, but you and I heard a live recording, and I wouldn't have initially thought that this would work well with live, but it actually works a little bit better with live recordings than it does with studio recordings yeah. because it really felt like you and I were in a theater watching this artist perform because when the applause came, it's surrounded like you're sitting in the audience but the sound was coming from like a stage uh, with air quotes and to hear that woman's voice and to hear the piano and to hear these things separate it was like we were sitting at Carnegie Hall um, with a quiet group of people uh, that would applaud between you know the, the songs it was unlike any live recording I'd ever heard oh yes and uh yeah I can hardly wait to hear that in Emma I mean that's talk about goosebumps and i wish we could talk about what it was but um yeah it, it, that'll come out and, and you'll hear so um one of the things this article in inputmag.com uh, was is talking about is is kind of the what's going on in the home and how you can experience a lot of this stuff with the sound bars that are coming out and again don't forget this is a, a lot of these things were developed for movies for sure but um companies like sonos and lots of other companies are making some really fantastic sound bars that give you uh again there's a simulated effect to it but it sort of bounces uh when we went in the studio you sit in the studio and there you are basically surrounded by speakers, speakers above you, speakers around you. But that's impractical for most homes. Um, there are home systems, and the original when when um, when these immersive things first came out, they were using for the home kind of speakers that fired up and then bounced off the off a ceiling. Um, those still exist, but there's they've also come a long ways in sort of simulating and 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 bouncing things in other directions. And so um, that's a really good way to listen to immersive in your home. And, and the writer for the article talks about using this these new Sonos devices specifically. So there's a lot of technology for the home that allows you to experience this now in a way that didn't exist before in these other uh, sort yeah. of attempts at immersive for, for the home. So yeah. that's good this, news. It is good news. This, this piece, by the way, was written by Samuel Pillay uh, from Input. And... Near the end of the article, he, he sums it up by saying, Dolby needs to convince more artists and producers to dedicate real time to their Atmos mixes mm-hmm. on the top of the work that's already needed to master an album for stereo. That's a good point. Even if the industry gets in lockstep here, Dolby has to win back uh, a few listeners that were turned off by the initial rollout of Atmos on Apple Music to show artists that all the work is worth it. Oh, and it needs to get every major streamer and platform on board. There you go, exactly, and and of course, music is just one. Certainly, it's for, it, this was developed for for um, for movies, and then you know we're talking a lot about music, but gaming is an enormous part of the immersive thing, mm, and yeah. so that's another area where a lot of people will get introduced to immersive through gaming, and that's a good thing. So if we can kind of keep it together and and work out a lot of this stuff, and there's a lot of 
things that are happening in the live space as well. And so that's something we'll have to talk about in the future. Our friend Greg Penny is super involved in that. And he's working on some things that are going to be super cool in the live world that in the future, we'll talk a little bit more. Yeah, about and that. they do touch on a couple of those things yeah. in mm-hmm. this article. It's a deep dive, um, so I encourage our listeners, if you're really into learning about this, this this piece is is pretty deep, and it touches on film, gaming, as well as uh, as music. Yes, so, you know, it's, it is, um, you know, we talk a lot about this all the time, which is, you know, a um, music and, and music catalogs and just um, the business of music is like an orchard or a garden. You know, you have to keep watering it and fertilizing it and, you know, paying attention to all of this material. And, and people like to listen to, there's a, there's a whole bunch of, di- I think in general, and we ran into this the first time with the, the, the I was involved in the early 2000s, um, Music companies like to do one thing, and that's kind of it. So, like streaming is is comfortable; they just sit back and the income rolls in. But you have to keep challenging your audience to a certain ex- extent and giving them new ways to experience this music, and and that's what this is. And there was a when we were listening to um, "Here Comes the Sun," Greg soloed everything down or he, he put everything down and we just listened to George's voice singing here comes the sun and I mean the first time he did that for me I literally had tears in my eyes because yeah. it, it's it was so personal and so um it was raw and it was just moving and again this is a song I've heard hundreds of times hundreds of times if not thousands of times and when you hear it for for a different in a different way, and it creates a different emotion, it's like, good lord, that is so powerful. That is the power of music. And so, you know, we have to keep thinking about all this stuff as we as we nurture these catalogs and nurture these artists and nurture these these albums and titles because that's how we keep gaining fans and people stay with music. So there you go. And on that note, Jay, we need to wrap up for crying out loud. We were getting pretty heavy there at the end. With well, this is like one of our, our lunches. We'll, we'll just go for yes, hours and talk is. about this stuff. And it that was the idea is. behind this podcast in the first place was just to, you know, take our, our lunches and just hit record. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, Jay and I certainly appreciate everybody listening into the show. And we we, we, we so uh, we get a lot of comments and emails and people we bump into and, and we lots of nice words and, and kind thoughts. Yeah. So thanks for listening in uh, every week. We really appreciate that. And of course, sure thanks do. to our sponsors, Music Business Association, Hypebot and Bands in Town. Without them, we could not, uh, could not do it at all. If you're going to the Music Business Association confab over there in Nashville, Tennessee, Look for Jay. He's he will be the most handsome guy in the room. That's how you can tell what he looks like. Um, and uh, go up and, and say hello to him and have a great time. And thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, won't we, Jay? For episode number ninety-two, yes, we will on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.